Welcome to On Farm Trials with the PNW Farmers Network, where we explore the many trials that come along with cropping systems innovation in the inland Pacific Northwest. Plenty of questions get asked while farming across this region, and together, we're digging into what it's like to try to answer some of them as producers, researchers, and the many other professionals in the field that get things done. We're glad you're here. I'm your host, Carol McFarland. We are visiting Odeberg Farms outside of Genesee, Idaho. Odeberg Farms is a partnership of Mr. Eric Odeberg, his mother Patricia Odeberg, his wife Malia, and their three boys, Ethan, Evan, and Nick. Today, we'll be talking with Eric about how they are aligning their conservation and production goals to preserve the 129-year legacy of Odeberg Farms. Welcome to the podcast, Eric. Thanks for having me out. Thanks you, Carol. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Appreciate you having me out today. Um, so let's get to talking. Would you share a bit about yourself, your farm, and who you farm with? Yeah, um, fourth generation, uh, Oldberg Farms. My great grandfather uh, uh, came here to this area uh, back in 1894. He actually didn't settle where we're standing today. Um, he settled about eight miles east of here. Um, and so that was the original farmstead. And so my longtime employee, he actually uh, lives there at that farm. And the uh, farm that we're at today, my uh, grandfather uh, purchased like in 1901. And I um, uh, feel very blessed that they decided to uh, settle here. It's uh, you know very good soil. We cover a wide area in the Genesee area from the breaks of the Clearwater River um, to eight miles east of Genesee, eight miles north of Genesee, and we're three and a half miles south of Genesee right now. And so more traditional Palouse topography and and uh, the stuff on the breaks is more what we call rim, rim ground. It's flatter, and um, but good soil as well. Uh, average. 22 inch rainfall area. Uh, for a time, my great grandfather um, moved to uh, Cooterville up on the Camas Prairie and farm, ranched, and uh, hauled mining equipment for a, for a while. And so uh, then he decided to come back here. And so I feel very blessed that you made that decision. I had a really good time meeting um, Carl, your hired man, who uh -huh. who has been working well, with your family since he was 18 and is now 80, no, 16. 16. Oh, 16. of course. Thanks for the correction. That's yeah. the difference. Um, and is now 80 years old. Yep. Yep. So. Still work, still productive. And he knows a lot. So I, hard worker. That's a good guy he's, to have around. Yeah. He's uh, kind of like a uh mentor to me growing up um uh, someone will have big shoes to fill i'm sure too. yeah I've, I've had a hard time uh finding that person you know it's uh you talked with other farmers um uh, farmers that i uh, uh work with and it's a, a constant struggle uh, finding finding employees and so um i don't know if i'll ever fill his shoes way they they were so it'll be it'll be different yeah that's for sure yeah it sounds like he's been a big part of your operation um would you talk a little bit more please about your um kind of your standard rotation if you have one you might not i know you have pretty diverse 
rotations around here? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a four year rotation, uh, winter wheat, uh, spring grain, um, canola, and then uh, pulse crop, usually uh, garbanzo beans. Uh, but I've uh, experimented a lot, a lot with uh, different alternative crops to the Palouse, uh, uh, millet, uh, sunflowers with some success. Um, and growing some cover crops as well um, to make no-till work of having a good diverse rotation I mean that's one of the cornerstones of conservation and farming and and um, um, so I'm a real big believer in uh, rotation and um, it, but it's uh, kind of hard in in the Palouse because you're you're really limited with the rainfall and uh, that we get like a warm, warm summer type crops like corn, soybeans that, you know, they just don't do well here because we don't have the summer precipitation and it's more of a Mediterranean type climate. We get all our moisture in the winter, early spring. It sounds like you've had some uh, adventures in trying different crops. I look forward to hearing a little bit more about those. Um, how long have you been in no-till? Oh, uh, 20... 23 years kind of started in you know, 2000 2001 um, purchased my first no-till drill in 02 and um, went, went from there yeah all right now we're leaning on this nice ag pro drill is this a good time to talk about that sure sure yeah um just um this is only my second season with it. Uh, my previous drill, John Deere 1895, I ran for 18 seasons. And I spent about three years researching, looking at uh, different drill options uh, before I purchased this. But um, I had a couple of uh, field men that uh, really thought that this was uh, the best drill out there and, you know, the, farmers I knew that that owned them and ran them they just loved them and real true no-till farmers and and so, I mean that's what it's all about growing good crops and um, thought this was I mean, it was worth it, it cost extra money uh, than other drills out there but I thought it was it was worth it. I mean it's very critical part of the farming operation and it's a good good purchase and so far i've been uh, pretty happy with it the uh, customer customer support is uh, fantastic uh, they really stand behind their work i mean we had a few things that i wanted to fix and correct and repair and they were just out here and right behind it got things fixed and so really uh, uh, really good company so did you get any special features i know or do you want to talk a little bit about what's on this drill that makes it really do what you want it to do i mean it sounds like you did a bunch of research would love yeah. to hear a little bit about what that process looked like as well, well. I, I really um love the seed placement with it uh with a, a traditional hoe type drill that is a something you kind of sacrifice uh with it but uh, this, it has a leading coulter and then it has uh, depth wheels on the back of the, of the shank. 
and then uh, uh, independent uh, hydraulic arm cylinders on each one of the openers and so um, it really uh, follows the ground contours uh, the slope my prior drill was a single disc drill and a lot of times in high residue situation you, you'd um, get the seed in in straw not good seeds the soil contact and just don't have that with this at all and um, and so to compensate for that with my old system i would uh, a lot of times do a fertilizer prior fertilizer pass and uh, uh, even though it was a one pass drill uh, to get some disturbance out there and and i really wanted to get away from that i wanted to have you know one pass true one pass uh, and be able to you know, get through the residue so does this work with spring canola i've been very happy with the uh, uh, sand with uh, spring canola. Uh, engineered new uh, seed meter rollers with it and um, it's very accurate at the low seeding rates that you have with canola and it also it gets you want to be very shallow as well but still have it in the soil and it, and it does an excellent job of that as well so um, it's been a you know, very nice surprise with that and then like going to garbanzo beans you want them deep um, three and a half, four inches deep, and they can do that too. And so, um, it, it's a, a little bit of a learning curve with it. Uh, I spent a lot of time last fall with that um, because you can adjust the leading coulters, um, and that you know makes a big difference uh, with the the performance of the opener. And so, I kind of learned that last fall. Did more experimenting this spring and. I think I got it figured out, but like I said, with the with Egg Pro Company, um, if you have a question, have a problem, just call or text, and I mean they're just able to uh, help you right, you know, with it and get things uh, figured out. So that's great. That's a good company to have behind you. You're already managing well, and, and, so and, much, and they're local. They're lo they're local, and so it's been a good fit. I'm um, glad went with this uh, this purchase. So. That's great. And pulling it up the hills, uh, what kind of house, horsepower does that take? Well, I, I just have a um, 485 horsepower uh, case quad track. Uh, I was concerned about it being able to handle pulling the, the, the drill, but it um, has a lot of uh, hydraulic down pressure you know, on the openers as well as on the, on the wings. So all the weight is in the uh, center section of the drill, but it kind of it transfers that weight out to the wings and then it also Has cylinders on the tongue and it transfers that weight then to the back of the tractor it, it pulls a lot easier than You know, it really should and then it has high flotation uh, Tires on it as well. And so I've been you know, very pleased with that I um, Used to be able to go up and down hills a lot more, you know, AB line. I, I can't do that anymore, but I have, uh, you know, section rate control and everything. So um, my over application has gone down with it uh, uh, because of that. So. Oh, nice. Yeah. There's always yeah. so much to just dig into with some of this, too. I feel like I could ask questions uh, about all of that and just keep going all you afternoon. Bet. But uh, yeah, uh, I like talking <laughs> about drills. Yes. <laughs> Well, I know it's one thing. It's one thing my um, 
wife does not like talking about so <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> she'd rather not talk about drills so <laughs> so if i get a chance uh, uh with you or anyone else that uh, i'm more than happy to, to do that <laughs> no that's great well you know it, it's really an important part I've, I've mentioned before that you know in the soil science world there's only so much that we really learn about equipment, at least kind of on the introductory level. And, you know, when we talk about soil health and different conservation practices, it's such a key piece of the oper operation that I think, and there's so much nuance um, in it as well. I mean, like you talk about like how much disturbance and down pressure. And, you know, I've heard that um, <laughs> one, one guy I was talking to said that seeding spring crops on the Palouse into no-till is like the Mount Everest of no-till oh. <laughs> because of the high residue. And so just getting through that to make no-till adoption successful, it's, know. you know, it's important. Uh, but you can also get, uh, I think, too caught up in it. I mean, it's a, it's really just one piece of the, of the puzzle of the conservation agriculture puzzle. And but it's it's important, but it's it's just part of the whole system, uh, really. So don't want to get too caught up in it. I noticed you had one combine in the shop. Is that the only one you run, or do you run a few? What do you what do you run in here? I have um, Case 9120 um, currently. I purchased in uh, 2014. Before that, I had uh, two John Deere 9600s. One combine took the place of those of those two, and um, I had a hard time, you know, believing that, thinking that that was uh, actually going to be the case, but it, it has been, and so it just really increases your productivity because you know you're eliminating an employee and um i you know have to do more work and just uh, harvesting all the all the acres but i mean you're just so much more efficient in uh, your uh, data uh, capability is is a lot better because you know you're harvesting all the, all the acres and so you're mapping all the acres and i've, I've been pleased with the the combine um the straw uh, management could be uh, better. I think uh, you know John Deere uh, combine is uh, has better uh, chaff spreader, but um, also what I've found with this uh, new Egg Pro drill that I have to uh, manage the straw uh, better, and so in high residue situations I have to run a um, a flail mower to uh, size the residue so the you know drill can get through it. That is a drawback. Overall, I'm pleased with the system. How it's working. Awesome. Um, well, and with that, let's talk a little bit about your um, management goals and how they might be different um, on whole farm scale, um, crop scale, field by year. Kind of what are you going for when you're thinking about your farm management decisions? Not going broke is probably right there at the top, but. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, my, my wife makes uh, sure that that um, that doesn't happen. That's good. But That's I, an important role on the farm. Yeah, it's a very, <laughs> very critical role. Yeah. Um, so yeah, she's a bit business mind of the of Oldberg Farms, and um, yeah, she has an MBA from Washington State, and so um, um, very important part of of uh, Oldberg Farms and uh, a great you know partnership um, with it, I think, and so. But I would say a whole farm approach uh, to things, um, and with a no-till, it really uh, 
forces you to um, you know, plan ahead and it really emphasizes the uh, importance of uh, crop rotation. And um, I'm always looking, like you said, looking to grow the most profitable crops, but sometimes other things uh, take precedence like uh, soil health or weed management. Um, so for example, um, uh, this year I do have a uh, full field cover crop and um, it's an enhancement with CSP and so I'm getting some um, support with that. But uh, I mean, the main reason I'm doing it is to uh, for weed management and, and and for soil health. But yeah, you're taking one field out of production for the year. I mean, you go back, my, my, my dad used to do that. And my you know, grandfather, they, you know, they'd, um, you know, have a field fallow, have green manure, and that's what, you know, essentially cover crop is, is green manure. And so it's adding back to the soil. So, I mean, from everything I've read, um, you know, with this cover crop, I'll have like 120 pounds minimum of uh, organic nitrogen. And so I'm really have my focus on reducing uh, synthetic inputs, reducing synthetic nitrogen, um, and that's just one way to, you know, reach that goal. That's great. Um, there's a lot of follow-up questions I, I would love to ask you there. Uh, how do you terminate your cover crop? Well, the plan is to use my flail more when uh, the weed that I'm going after, Italian ryegrass, when it, uh, you know, the head uh, forms on it to, to you know mow it mow it all down, and then there's uh, certain species in the cover crop that uh, won't be terminated. Even though that weed is will be hopefully terminated, they will it will keep growing. And I'm uh, the plan is not to uh, grow anything on that ground until uh, next spring. Um, if a certain moisture situations occur. Um, I might do fall canola, but um, just got to be ready for that, I guess. Uh, but my, my real plan is not maybe spring canola next year uh, behind that cover crop before going to winter wheat. Your cover cropping plan. I think there's a lot that goes into developing a cover cropping plan. So where did you go to follow up on that? <clears throat> well, um, um, you know, no-till farmer has a lot of stuff on you know, cover crops. Um, but there's other, other growers in the area that have had a lot more experience uh, with cover crops. Uh, Wayne Jensen, uh, Frank Wolf, and I've also Guy Swanson. I use his uh, fertilizer uh, application system. Uh, he had a fair amount of knowledge with cover crops as well. And so uh, I just, I took from whatever sources I uh, could to uh, figure out the Mix. I'm doing seven different species of cover crops, and, and uh, hopefully it uh, does what I intend it to do, yeah. <laughs> so what's in the mix? Uh, it has um, sorghum Sudan grass, it has um, uh, just regular spring peas, it has uh, barley, hairy vetch, um, clover, sweet clover, um, you know, things like that. So. Yeah, the warm season grasses, uh, cool season grasses, uh, cool season broadleaves. Do you yeah. use this Ag Pro to seed it? I know yeah, sometimes yeah, seeding different to, size yeah. seeds at different rates can get a little No, tricky. it worked it worked fine with, with that. I use my wheat uh, 
seed rollers with it and because um, you had you know big large seed small seed and that seemed to uh, fit the bill which trials do you currently have going on your farm so it sounds like you've got your cover crop trial thanks for talking a bit more about that what else do you have going on out here well i'm i'm currently uh, working with a independent certified crop advisor his name's doug johnson and um I, I guess I kind of like to call him my uh, soil health coach. And um, so we kind of have three main goals right now. Uh, the first one is increase soil health and then uh, reducing synthetic nitrogen inputs and, uh, and then just reducing my overall fertilizer chemical budget. You know, last year, probably along with uh, a lot of other farmers, it was... Uh, pretty <laughs> expensive year. It was a dramatic uh, increase in that um, part of our budget. And so really uh, focusing on this year, trying to reduce that. And so <laughs> Yeah, I don't know that the market <laughs> prices really take the, uh, the, the commodity market prices when you sell your crop really take the input costs into consideration very yeah, well, do uh, they? Yeah, yeah. And uh, um, my wife has really uh, been, <laughs> you got to reduce that. You got to somehow get that uh, under control uh, the fertilizer chemical part of our budget and um, so it, it goes then it goes well with uh, soil health so by reducing um, those inputs you're reducing that part of the budget so um, that's a few things that we're doing we did this spring um, did it primarily with canola and uh, malt barley um, doing uh, splitting up fields, doing uh, a full, this normal rate of uh, fertilizer, and then um, also in the same field, cutting the fertilizer you know, back about a quarter, third. Um, also doing different fields that way, comparing you know one uh, normal field and then one where it's reduced and where I've reduced the um, fertilizer inputs I'm I'm adding uh, biological or uh, natural products in that mix and just to see you know if that helps uh, compensate for the you know reduced rate of, of fertilizer so yeah I have, I have a lot um, experimenting with this this year this season and um, Hope to get some answers. Well, if it shows no difference in everything, then I then I know kind of know that. <laughs> yeah, I don't have to be applying a lot of fertilizer, and I've just been I'm kind of incrementally uh, uh, scaling back. I, I started that about um, 18 years ago with uh, uh, purchase of the Exactrix fertilizer system, and it has uh, even application of anhydrous ammonia along with liquid fertilizer and so I mean this claim is to be able to reduce uh, nitrogen um, fertilizer inputs by 20% because of the even application and so I did that and showed that it you know wasn't a reduction in yield and so I've just kind of continued that on and then um, about 15 years ago started doing a variable rate application and um, you know, that reduced um, 
fertilizer inputs another 15%. And I got that ground truth by um, um, a research program that I was in. It was part of the uh, REACH project. It was uh, called the Site-Specific Climate-Friendly Farming uh, project and um, it was in 10 acres. They had 22 monitoring stations within that 10 acres and uh, really showed that what I was doing with variable rate was uh, right on. That like my nitrogen use efficiency was uh, 80%. And I mean, usually if you're 50%, that's what the, you know, the gold standard is. And so um, by you know reducing your nitrogen and putting it where you need it i think that really is what increases the efficiency there with it so it was, it was um, a great project to be involved with um, got just a tremendous amount um, out of it and uh, but then here going forward uh, just doing things to increase the soil health uh, you know cover crops using more you know, natural products, and then just trying to reduce that uh, fertilizer rate uh, further uh, then as well. And, you know, I don't know if I'll ever get to the point of not, not you know, having synthetic fertilizer. I just don't think that's practical. I mean, we might have to at some point, um, but um, at least not, maybe not in my lifetime, but maybe. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's a lot of pieces in this egg puzzle, aren't there? You never really know what's coming down the pipeline. Um, so when you made your, um, your maps to do your initial variable rate applications, did you base that off your yield monitor or other, other data um, before, prior to ground truthing it with the REACH project? Yeah, I had a um, yield monitor, combine, made uh, maps from that and then just started doing it with uh, infrared imagery that you know, seemed to work just as well it, it it shows the same variations with the, within a field and of all the areas in, in the united states uh, growing producing areas that uh, Palouse really screams for that technology because of the the hills and the roaded uh, clay hilltops and the really deep topsoil that's in our uh, uh, low-lying areas. Uh, also with my Xactric fertilizer system, it's very uh, responsive. It uh, you know, runs on Power Beyond and it has hydraulic uh, uh, valves on it and it has like a, a three-second uh, response time. So it works uh, really well with, with variable rate and it's able to uh, change very quickly in, uh, in between those those zones, those production zones, and usually um, I've hired out with the uh, with the mapping, and but here I don't know for the last five, eight years I've just been using maps that I have, and and I've just been using those because they they work and <laughs> and it's easy. And um, thing though I haven't done, haven't gotten into, and I've I've wanted to, and now I can with how my uh, drill is. Um, uh, configured setup. I have uh, hydraulic drive for my seed, and so I really want to get into uh, variable rate seeding. And um, you have to have a different kind of an application map for that. That's different than the fertilizer application map, and so that's been a big, big real big stumbling block in my mind. It doesn't. This really doesn't correlate. Uh, 
really well with the variable rate fertilizer. Um, so you want to you know, have a higher seeding rate on the north slopes, and that's not necessarily the case <laughs> usually with uh, with fertilizers. So uh, having the two different maps and I'm just you know there's guys that are making it work, doing it, and I just haven't crossed that bridge yet, I guess. So. Well, now you got this drill, maybe that'll help. Yeah, you, maybe got, you have a get new assist. problem to solve. <laughs> maybe my uh, soil health coach can help with that, or um, another crop advisor. I use a lot of different crop advisors. It's um, they're a valuable resource. It's uh, it's a resource I don't find painful to write a check to because I really think I'm getting a lot of uh, value and the, the work that they're doing it, there's a lot of other things that are a lot more painful like writing the, <laughs> the, the fertilizer <laughs> chemical uh bill and um or the fuel bill and um uh, but writing it to those guys i i don't uh has a bigger problem with that you said you got infrared mapping done as part of your fertilizer variable rate fertilizer kind of entry point can mm -hmm. you tell me just briefly about what that looked like did you hire that out it sounds like or did you do you have a drone with infrared on it yourself yeah no just i hired that out i used um um egg verdict which is a uh, it's kind of the precision egg uh component of wilbur ellis company and they, they made the maps that i'm uh, currently using and i haven't gotten into drones at all um but I know guys do, and I think um, it seems like they really have a place in um, like in-season monitoring of your fields, and that's I think where drones really, um, you know, can be a useful useful tool. Uh, but as far as making maps of uh, infrared imagery, I, I don't, you know, I think just getting satellite imagery is just just as good. Yeah. Well, it, it is a bit of a different perspective from from the air. You can see different patterns than mm -hmm. you can just going out into it. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a great segue into talking a bit more about some of the things you monitor when you try things. You've tried quite a few different things over the years, haven't you, here on your place? Um, what what kinds of things do you tend to look for through the season? I want to make sure that my you know yields are are increasing and. Um, not really going after the uh, you know top yield that's not not my goal is is to be the highest yielding grower in the Genesee area which is tough to do because it's a <laughs> pretty competitive uh, area to be farming in and good good soil and um, you know it's really focusing on the marginal rate of return and, and that's where the you know reducing the, the fertilizer and still getting a an average yield is, um, you know, kind of my focus right now. You know, I've been asking folks about their return on investment. And it sounds to me like you might have some other parameters for return on investment. So we had a, um, a workshop this last winter. We were talking about on-farm experimentation. And, and Dr. Dave Huggins was there. And he had a, an interesting breakdown for framing up return on investment. You know, the, the soil, oil, and toil components of, of how... Your, your inputs lead to outputs. You no, know, I said I experimented with sunflowers and it takes a f quite a bit more 
work and time it seems like uh, to grow that crop and so you kind of have to you plug that into the equation of you know, whether or not it's profitable and something that has to be pretty profitable before and if you're going through that kind of a headache and hassle to be able to continue on with that and that's I've had a hard time with sunflowers and not having a consistent yield and having the, the extra work and extra headache and and so that's more <laughs> the, the toil aspect and and uh it'd be one thing if you know, they were really making <laughs> a lot of money and they and it, they do great things for the soil you know with the big you know deep taproot and and everything and the pollinators and fun crop to grow and um but you really have to take that into consideration when when growing that crop really uh, uh almost uh, seeded them again last year because you know war in ukraine and they're number one sunflower producer in the or they produce 80 percent of the sunflowers in the world and thought well yeah it might be a great opportunity but I don't think the the price really <laughs> did get up that that high uh, with them, and and like I said, I just haven't been able to get a consistent yield with them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and here in Genesee, what do you take them up to Spokane for a market, or where do you market them? Yeah, for the bird seed market, mm -hmm. and which uh, Global Harvest, and that's closest uh, one in in Spokane. And the same thing with uh, millet as well, but um, uh, with millet, I've uh, been working with. WSU, they got a send uh, uh, a SARE grant looking at the food market for for millet and not just birdseed, the, the human consumption market for for millet. And um, so I've been growing uh, test strip trials uh, uh, with them. Probably played around with it the most uh, here on the Palouse, and so um, and did find a. Uh, uh, a food market for for my test strip production last last year. Uh, uh, Jeremy Bunch with Shepherd's Grain uh, found uh, a company on the west side. It's mostly uh, companies on the west side. Whether it's a uh, gluten free malt, that's what one thing that uh, millet could be could be used for is uh, gluten free malt, so gluten free grain. Um, and but unfortunately everything seems to be on the west side so then you have the transportation costs <laughs> associated with that yeah, yeah I'm, 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 hope, I'm hopeful that um, something will uh, come about with that having a, um, a gluten-free malting company I was doing some uh, something with uh, link malting up in Spokane uh, a few years ago with millet and then they decided not to and went a different direction and um, but you know, maybe they will, or another company will, um, decide to do that and, um, be able to grow millet for, uh, human food consumption. So that would increase the value, um, uh, versus this bird seed. I have two follow-up questions. I'd like to hear, what would you have liked to know when you started growing millet or what have you learned about growing millet that you would tell? someone who is just starting well I, I just went and um, looked at the production guides uh, for um, extension in Nebraska and um, North Dakota South Dakota and took a lot of what they had trial and error and, and you know and try to adopt it here 
on the Palouse and uh, just some of the things that um, I learned from it is it's you know it's a warm season grass so you just you you seed it later and and um, so one of my experiences with that seeding it later uh, you know two years ago when we had our had our drought I seeded it after Mother's Day because that's what I've kind of found out that that's a good time to grow it like when you plant your garden it's the same <laughs> same kind of concept and well but the thing was it never got any moisture after that so it uh it unfortunately failed it became a cover crop and um but then that did end up being one of my best you know, yielding fields of winter wheat the following year so you know <laughs> did get yet uh, something out of it uh um which kind of encouraged me to go more into uh, cover crops and um, but but still like, getting back to millet itself uh, versus sunflowers I've had very consistent yields with with millet and so that's a good um, aspect of of the crop um, it's it's I don't know, it's very similar to barley uh, production wise uh, uh, seeding and growing it and harvesting it and um and so it's not where i was talking about sunflowers being a, you know more work more of a headache um it isn't you don't have to have uh, special equipment i've rented a header to harvest them uh before from another uh, uh grower mark richter and um and then we helped him adapt that header to harvest it even better and so that was you know, more more work <laughs> again once again with sunflowers and sounds like uh, innovation to me <laughs> and innovation yeah, and and uh, but you don't have you don't have that with milk so you don't have any of that um harvest headache i guess so but hope hopefully uh, yeah it could become a, uh, a crop on the palouse we'll we'll see what comes out of this research grant yeah, looking forward to hearing more about that. I kind of want to come visit you again, Eric, and there's just, there's so much more that we could talk about. And I also want to know, you sounds like you're trying a lot of stuff. I'd like to hear what comes out of your combine maps this year with some oh, of the fun yeah. you're trying um, this season. But um, so I know that you've got a long history of being one of the shepherd's grain um, growers. Do you have, do you have a, an elevator talk about shepherd's grain? And what's that? What that's been like? Well, um, Carl Coopers and and Fred Fleming, who uh, started the company um, uh, over twenty years ago, really, you know, they were cutting edge, way ahead of their time with the the concepts behind Shepherd's Grain you know, being a, a sustainable. Um, identity preservation i mean every you know now everyone wants to know where the food comes from well i mean we they did that from from the start and every pound of flour was you would be able to find out which farm you know that bag of flour came from so having that verification and then having a a, a third party uh, verification with uh, all the growers to ensure that they're you know, practicing sustainable uh, production methods, that they are you know, training their employees um, well, and then also having a wildlife uh, preservation component uh, to their farm. 
you know, has, has been a, that's another one of the cornerstones of, of uh, Shepherd's Grain that, that differentiates and that allows Shepherd's Grain to uh, have a premium uh, price in, in the market. But uh, uh, last summer, very unfortunate thing uh, uh, happened. Um, actually, I was just I, I did a podcast with uh, Jeremy bunch about this time last year right right before this event happened um, but the the flour mill Pendleton flour mills that uh, that we were using uh, burn right before last harvest and so um very unfortunate turn of events and um the company uh, Greencraft who owned the, the flour mill their next closest flour mill was in uh, Blackfoot Idaho and so um, they had to find some no-till growers down there. Thankfully, I mean, there that is kind of a, another hotbed uh, production area that has uh, a lot of no-till growers, so that wasn't uh, very difficult. But uh, it's <laughs> it's been hard uh, being uh, so closely tied with that that company with that co-op, and then the, to have that uh, happen. I um, I was fortunate that I continued to. And be able to haul grain uh, down there. We hauled hauled it ourselves all the way down to to, to Blackfoot. Um, and your wife was okay with that. Yeah, well, I did not do the hauling. No, I did not do the hauling. <laughs> so, um, but it, it penciled out, and then we were able to uh, uh, backhaul uh, lime um, wow. um, from uh, Nampa. Um, doing that and Greencraft is uh, trying to figure out what they are going to do as far as uh, flour mill uh, goes um, and uh, but we're still you know part of the company uh, we're having our uh, annual board meeting is actually uh, tomorrow um, and we'll get an update on on things but um, I don't, it's not dead for by any means, but it's been a challenging year. Oh, I don't think I don't think Fred or Carl planned or envisioned that uh, either. Well, it seems like the milling, you know, that there's there's a lot in between the field and the eaters that that makes a big difference in cropping systems innovation. And it does seem like Shepherd's Grain was trying to take some of that stuff on, and um, and also from what I understand, really try to tie your market price to the cost of production a bit more closely. And I also, in my experience with the Farmers Network, really appreciate that um, all the Shepherd's Grain growers seem to be the first to sign up for all the soil health events hmm. that we've done. So you guys clearly really care about that. Yeah, and, and thanks for reminding about the yeah, cost of production. That's another uh, real uh, cornerstone uh, that base the uh, price of our wheat uh, flour on is on the cost of production and um, uh, it's a very important part of the successful model that uh, has been created there. From what I understand, the third party certification that you mentioned is the Farm Smart still? Uh, or is it no, it, uh, uh, we're still doing it uh, doing with Food Food Alliance. Food Alliance, okay. Yeah, yeah. So we uh, were doing it with uh, Farm Smart and um, but it's kind of stuck with uh, uh, Food Alliance. Thanks for clearing that up for yeah. me. But you know, Eric, um, having known you for a few years at this point and seeing you be first in line at a lot of the Farmers Network soil health events and um, 
I would be really interested to hear a bit more from you in terms of what you look for when you're evaluating soil health successes on your farm. What, what do you what do you look for? Do you do soil testing? It sounds like maybe you're, you're starting to think more and more about pH too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It just it um, really seemed to me that I was reaching a, I had a plateau. Um, I talked to other farmers experiencing the same thing. A resident was was really uh, battling that. So his uh, successor, Clint Zinner, he started trying different things as well, and so similar stuff that that uh, that I'm doing and, and other. Uh, things and um, um, really trying to change that soil soil health and um, you know pH is a, a big part of that. Um, but one thing I just look for is just, you know going, when you go out into into the field and you uh, dig into the soil and, and you know see the see the earthworms and residue on on the ground and you want to see that you want to see that soil life and um and want to see that in increasing and i just you know i don't think you really we haven't been seeing it it's been really plateaued and so doing some of these other things like cover crops and and reducing our synthetic nitrogen hopefully that that will change we'll see see more benefits at not that it's that our soil health is, is bad. I did uh, the Haney test uh, for a long time with with CSP and you know, all the uh, scores and everything were were all right. <laughs> they weren't bad, but you know, they, just, they seemed to just kind of stay there and they weren't improving and and um, wanted to really try to change that. So I'm hearing from you that observing the soil as a vital living ecosystem is definitely more of an art than a science on your farm yeah it's 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 both you you know i take soil tests every year every spring every fall oh gosh <laughs> one thing though that i've been doing with um uh, Doug Johnson um, that he got me doing that's John Kempf uh, started and um, it's uh, sap analysis and it's not tissue testing it's sap analysis and it is uh, been very insightful and in that um, a lot of times um, what your plants are showing or deficiency is is not what it is <laughs> and uh that is that the plant's lacking uh, some other nutrient that what it is showing that it's deficient in um another thing that um, i'm also looking at is uh, when you when you have a healthier plant you're also you have um, less pe pest pressure which is um, primarily insect but also disease pressure as well and that's another thing that John Kempf uh, uh, preaches and I was reading about another researcher uh, I think it's Thomas Dykstra he has a um, another instrument that uh, uh, can can get the same kind of a measurement uh, 
kind of instantaneously out in the in the field and to, and it comes up with a score and whether or not that plant is healthy or not and so there's a lot of <laughs> measuring tools and um, and it seems like they're getting better and they're being able to direct uh, our inputs to different things and and being more efficient for example with the sap analysis um, this year uh, um, so you have to sample uh, twice during the you know early part of the growing season and and uh, when Doug came back with that second sample he said well you're, you have to apply this this and this uh, to your crop and you know we we're dry didn't look like there's gonna be any rain in the future and and um, but I don't know, slept on it, woke up in the morning and I was like, gosh, I got to do this. And so I did. And then, then it happened to rain. We've been getting thunderstorms off and on. And so um, now I'm really glad. And, and some of it was uh, adding additional nitrogen, but a lot of, you know, stuff wasn't. It was adding, you know, uh, soluble phosphorus, um, uh, boron, uh, uh, libidinum. Uh, and that's humic- all foliar. Right. Full, yeah, foliar, yep. foliar applied, yeah. Mm-hmm. Kind of late, late season, the, the flag leaf, flag leaf timing, and so. Um, yeah. Did you say there's humic in there too? I'm sorry, I think I cut you off. Yeah, or, yeah. Okay. I'm doing a lot more. I've I've done a lot with humic in the past, and um, doing I've been doing more like with uh, molasses as a carbon source with my nitrogen. And so I think that's a way of being able to reduce nitrogen as well, having that carbon source with it. A um, uh, product called uh, Boost is what we've been uh, using. And I think fundamentally, one of the things I'm very interested in is, so when you try something, how do you know if it worked? How do you know whether, you know, what's your end of year evaluation? how do you know if it's something you're going to put into practice or try again next year? What do you think? Well, if it it, increases the yield, um, you know, yeah, (laughs) definitely work. Mm -hmm. But if it, if you got the same yield, but you reduced your inputs by 20%, 15% even, I mean, that's, that's a win. And Mm -hmm. so, um, you gotta look at all, all aspects of it. And, um, um, and just, you know, using that with the yield monitor, um, uh, Guy Swanson said, oh, you, you got to do the, you know, your strip trials, do the, you know, the way they, the researchers have, have done it. If you really want to know, and I don't know, I think just so much more lately, uh, you just have farmers out there just looking at their yield monitor and I mean, you can flag off an area with, um, with a you know production app and and be able to look at that map then and you know and get a you know accurate reading now and so it's just so much easier to you know find out you know maybe it's not quite as precise as as uh, you know <laughs> an engineer would would like to have and I, i'm not going to argue that <laughs> but uh just for a practical uh, business farmer um you know, that's what I look at, and I, I think it tells you tells you enough. Well, from my opinion. 
Well, you've had a lot of experience working with researchers and, and other folks just to try things on your farm. It sounds like you've really kind of homed in on, you know, also the way you try things on your farm um, as a working farm. I heard earlier when you were talking about reducing your nitrogen inputs, um, you do like split fields. How do you choose how to represent things, especially with the spatial variability that we've talked about? If I have a certain amount of fertilizer or seed in my drill, uh, fertilizer in my drill, and I say, well, I'm going to do that you know, full rate. I'll just do that. And then I'm going to try the rest of the field, this, uh, this different rate, and try a different, different product, and I'll just compare them. And, you know, I look at the convenience and not making it you know, work harder like you <laughs> talked about earlier and, and uh, you know, let's kind of try things out uh, that way. Great. Yeah. Um, how do you keep track of all the stuff you're, you're trying? Well, I have this notebook here and I, I'm very um, kind of old school and uh, um, like for the WSU um, uh, test plots, I just, you know, wrote things down and acres and different varieties and fertilizer rays and and i just do that with it's just maybe one of my <laughs> maybe i'll get someone uh, an employee that will get me into uh, fully into the technological age or one of my boys will will do that uh, but um, i don't know i'm still stuck in old school <laughs> do you have a big pile of those notebooks somewhere in yeah yeah um but I know farmers are very, they, they like their paper, I think, and um, I guess I'm guessing I'm one of those. And um, yeah. yeah, you know, you have this, all this great technology out there, but you know, you need to be able to uh, have it at your fingertips and, and not get frustrated by trying to find it and <laughs> fiddle with it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds so. like you're using that too, just fine, Eric. Yeah, but yeah. Um, you but know, I usually need need help with it, and so yeah, you'll get no argument with from yeah. me on the on the paper side of things. Well, you know what? It's been a real pleasure um, visiting with you today. Um, I think we could probably talk about this stuff for quite a while longer, but um, I think this is a great place to stop for now. And maybe sure. there's room to follow up another day. Okay. Nice talking with you too, uh, Carol. With, um, ben, yeah. Nice, uh, nice, good interview. Thanks. <laughs> well, thank you. And I'm glad you got to talk about your drill a little bit yes. with me too. Yeah. Um, is there anybody you'd like to nominate for being on the podcast that you'd like to hear from? Well, you probably, you've already uh, interviewed Russ. No. Nope. No? Well, you need to interview, interview him. So he's very uh, um, instrumental. He, he, you know, he started uh, direct seeding and no-tilling uh, before I did and so I farmed uh, you know, I shared a lot of uh, fence row with him and so I was able to you know, watch what he was doing very closely and then start adapting uh, a lot of things that he was doing on my farm and uh, but then did our parallel uh, courses and you know he's he's retired now which um i kind of was disappointed with but you know it's uh you have a time and place to to step away and uh you know he did that and he's still a great resource and and he he loves talking about all all of these same topics that we talked about so that's why i would nominate
All right, and that's Mr. Zenner, right? Well, I always love having folks nominated to, that'll be good. So maybe the podcast will give you another vicarious opportunity to peek over the fence at what he's up to. Yep. Take good notes. Yep. As <laughs> always, so a much, big Aaron. thank you to our guests today for sharing their wealth of knowledge and experience with us. This podcast is produced by the PNW Farmers Network team with music credit to Carlos Flores. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not represent that of the PNW Farmers Network or any associated agencies. Please remember that experimental results will vary and listeners are encouraged to try things at home. If you like what you heard, please support this work by sharing, rating, and reviewing. And do consider joining us as a guest or nominating a friend who is trying things on their farm. We look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, happy trials.